0: For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU.
1: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way.
0: everyone this is Dr. Susan Hedson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my amazing talented beautiful co-host Dr. Carrie Vediat from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblin from National Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing?
2: Great. Oh my God. We just got back from ASRM, big conference uh, for our listeners. I have the biggest introverts hangover ever. And, and ASRM our- is our big fertility meeting. So we were yeah, at lots our of, national like,
1: fertility meeting. Lots of meeting things and lots of things after the meeting. And we're worn out.
0: <laughs> so it's educational stuff all day long. And then it's networking <laughs> and making connections. And all that type of stuff. That's a small talk long for for about three to four days, and it it is definitely an annual endurance
1: test.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Fun but exhausting. Yeah, I, Susan and Abby, you guys are both amazing at talking to people and just going, going, going. Like I think I have hit my quota of people to talk to for <laughs> at least two months, perhaps. Like patients are easy. Friends and family are easy, but people I don't know, good Lord. All the words. We have said all the words. I have used up my quota of all the words to listen and to say for months to come. But you I
1: know, it's I, funny. I tell them. I think when you, it, I think small talk, I really actually enjoy making small talk because I find that if you ask people a lot about themselves, you find out so much. And it's, I've got like a bucket list of four or five questions that if I can't think of anything else to say, this is what I'll ask you. And it's just, it's fun. I enjoy it. I learn lots of things.
2: All right. I need to get your question list before next next ASRM so that I'm armed. Okay. Okay. Like I'm good for all the academic stuff. I can go for hours fine, but yeah. But at least going through the, um, like the the exhibition hall at a fertility conference, there is always neat random stuff.
1: And <laughs> the so, swag we acquire is pretty fun. It and you know because we're fertility doctors, so you can imagine what the swag kind of surrounds. And so I'll start with my funnest swag that I got. One of the funnest things I got were these socks, and they for people that can see. Well, can't see it very well, but the bottom of the socks says "getting," and the other sock says "lucky." It shows an egg and <laughs> a egg and a sperm on one side so egg and sperm you know on each sock so I thought that was a really fun cool swag you know just you know these are the kinds of things that you probably don't want to wear out in public although at the bottom of your socks most people won't see that but um but for us you know for those of us in the know it's kind of fun stuff
0: so so Abby can you can you demonstrate the giggling sperm
1: So I usually don't pick up that much swag, but I think I was talking to people more maybe than usual. And so I'd never seen this before. Susan said she has several of these, I think. <laughs> but my husband asked when I went to New Orleans, he's like, well, what are you going to bring me back for a gift? And I was like, oh, you know, I'll bring you back something. So when I saw this like glowing sperm, it's like um, it's like a shiny sperm. I, it was really cute. It was given out by Fairfax Cryobank. And apparently they've done that for years. I've just never seen them before. But what I didn't realize that everybody else knew is that they, that they have the funniest sound so ever since I got back from the conference every single morning my husband when I wake up plays this sound of a little kid laughing is what it sounds like and it goes on and on and on as you can see and so I you know next year I don't think I'm gonna get him another giggling sperm because I'll have to listen to that for probably a few months afterwards
2: so do you have um, any idea the number of giggling sperm I have in my house no I have blue. I have gold. I have yellow. I have all the colors of giggling sperm in my house. And whenever someone sees it, they're like, oh, look, it's a little laughing whale. <laughs> yeah, actually, it that's what my husband first said. Oh, it's a whale. No, it's not a whale.
1: Remember, I'm not a whale. doctor. It's not a whale. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. They the are so
0: fun. I always love the little stuffed animals from um, the surrogacy agency. It, they uh-huh. have these little stuffed animals and they've had them for years. And within the bellies of them, they have little baby animals. Used to, they would come with twins. But as we all know, we are aiming for singletons because ha- that's the yep. safest thing for moms and babies. So now they have little singleton babies in in, in the little stuffed animals. And those are always very precious.
1: Mm-hmm, cute. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it.
2: I was just the last day I was walking around and I was talking to one of the nutritional uh, companies and um, they had, most people have like candy or granola bars that taste like wood chips and, <laughs> and all these other things. And they had a bag of oranges out on there because they're a nutritional company. Yeah. And I was absolutely thrilled. I'm like, oh, Root vegetables, bring it on! Because I don't think I'd seen anything of any nutritional value in four days by that point.
0: Yeah, I was I was just happy to get home and be able to eat three times a day.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and eat something nutritious
1: instead of lots of like snacky stuff. Yeah, everything fried. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, let's do some questions. Okay. All right. All right. Here's our first one. Um, question is premature menopause. Hi, I am 34-year-old single woman with a history of hypothalamic amenorrhea due to high exercise, low BMI, and high-stress lifestyle. It's been 10 years since last menstrual period. I saw my GP in 2012 for a workup. He tried OCPs but stopped due to side effects. Life got busy and I ignored the problem. Shame on me. Then in (laughs) April of 22, I grew concerned about fertility preservation, so I saw an REI. Labs? AMP 1.28, TSH 2.18, T4 1.4, LH 4.9, FSH 8.8, prolactin 4.2, estradiol less than 5. BMI normal, RA felt confident that I have the time and suggested waiting until 37 for cryopreservation unless I met somebody sooner. Would love your advice. Should I be concerned regarding long-term consequences of low estrogen? Would you give OCPs another try? I welcome all feedback. Great
1: question. So, did she say AMH or I heard AMP? She AM- said
0: she said AMP, but I'm imagining she meant AMH. AMH was one point what two28 Okay, okay. FFSA and
2: she's 28. Held- 28.
0: how old is she now? She's currently thirty four. Ari is saying, wait till thirty seven.
1: No, understand where premature menopause comes from and all. Yeah, of this. that's that's I mean, what I'm trying to figure out too. She's not having periods,
0: up. so I think she is potentially having deleterious effects of having low estrogen. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's not good. So. I would recommend either cyclic estrogen and progesterone or birth control pills. There's lots of formulations, So sometimes you try something and it works and sometimes you try something and it doesn't. Um, So I, I think that's an issue. I totally agree. I don't think we have premature menopause. Okay. Um, but uh, I would say if you're not doing anything, you need to do something. But ladies, what do you think about if you're 34 and thinking about freezing your eggs? Do you do it now or do you do it in three years from
1: now? Now, absolutely now. now, yeah. There's no time like the present. I don't. I haven't met too many reproductive endocrinologists say, "Oh, you're fine for now. Just wait two or three years." So we don't. We don't say that. I don't think we don't ever recommend that because you know your fertility is only going to diminish as you as time goes by, and we just don't know how quickly it's going to diminish. We know that the genetics of the egg change from thirty-four to thirty-seven, so higher percentage of your eggs will be genetically abnormal. I think that, and so, so I think it's really important. I would definitely recommend freezing eggs sooner rather than later regarding replacement of estrogen, the one other thing I wanted to say from an endocrinology standpoint, you know, you're losing bone. If you don't have estrogen yeah. present, you're losing bone. I would, for my patients that have hypothalamic amenorrhea, I recommend if it's been several years since they've been on estrogen, get a bone density scan because that will really tell you pretty quickly where you're at. And if you find that you have osteopenia, which is low bone mass or osteoporosis, a lot of times that really compels people. You know, the side effects of birth control don't seem so bad if you know that you're losing bone and, and you know, you need that for your bone density. So, you know, estrogen is the most important part of that, but also um, vitamin D and calcium you want to take too. So, I would highly recommend making sure you get plenty of that in your diet just for your bone health. Mm-hmm.
2: When you are thinking about replacing estrogen, uh, if you have a uterus, you need to make sure you've got progesterone in there somewhere because that is protective against endometrial cancer. And so some people, particularly if you're not planning on getting pregnant anytime soon, you pop a morena or some progesterone IUD in and then take estrogen however it's most comfortable for you. Sometimes that can minimize the side effects. Um, estrogen patches avoid the first pass effect of the liver. And so you don't have the same kind of metabolites in your blood. And so some people tolerate that a lot better. Um, and so a lot of hormone replacement is patches and either estrogen pills or an IUD or something like that. So maybe think about that. You need to give the birth control pills like a solid three months in order to decide if you really don't like the side effects because when you first start anything, it's your body's going to get used to and- it.
0: And most side effects from birth control pills do go away after the first three months, so that's why we say give it a good try before quitting. When people call after two weeks of being on birth control pills and they're like, "I don't like these," it it may not be a yeah. be a full try. Yeah.
2: And as you're thinking about freezing eggs, I would definitely say seize the moment because whenever someone comes to us who has the the wherewithal to know this is important to me, then. You really want to do it sooner rather than later, particularly in this age group, because life happens. I mean, we we see it all the time of yeah. someone says, oh, yeah, I'm going to come back when I'm you know, 36 and a half to do this. And then all of a sudden they change jobs. There is a crisis in the family. Their dog dies. They get busy. The, you know, they kind of meet someone and they're on the verge and they just don't know. Do I like this person or do I not like? Life happens all the time. And if this is important enough for you to actually go see a physician, which uh, most people hate doing on a regular basis of any type, like act on it. You know, this is important. Just do it now because today is the best day. It's only going downhill from here.
0: To give you a good visual representation online, you can look at the Brigham and Women's egg calculator. Yeah, and you, can put yeah. in, you can put in your age and you can also, I believe you can put in some of your ovarian reserve testing results. A-H-O, and, A-H-O, A-H-O, your AMH, I believe. And mm-hmm. it will show you what is the likelihood of you being able to have one child, two children, or three children based on the number of eggs that you might retrieve. Just to give people an idea, most people are going to retrieve between 8 to 15 eggs depending on what their ovarian reserve is and so that and you can play with it with different age ages mm-hmm. so you can get an idea of if I'm 34 now what's the impact when I'm 36 or the impact when I'm 38 mm-hmm. Um, and that gives you know us sitting there and talking about that it makes a difference when you have actual numbers that you're like oh yeah. I kind of like um 60 to 70 percent chance <laughs> versus 30 to 40 percent chance so and your eggs
1: go further as, as you'll see them the more eggs you have the the more likely you're to have one child and two child. Whereas if you freeze your eggs at 37, your likelihood of having three kids from that one egg freeze is pretty low. If you look at the the data analytics from that, so it's a really it's a really cool model. That's neat that somebody's really done that at, at Brigham and Women's.
0: All right, let's do one more. Hi, I'm 37 and preparing for my first FET in a few days. I have endo and did two months of Depo Lupron and Letrozole. At my second screening appointment for the FET cycle, my lining was 8.4. A week later, it was. Seven point six. Do you think that's a result of my endo? Haven't had any bleeding or spotting, or do you think it might have been measured wrong once, or is there another explanation? I've been on two milligrams of estrace three times a day. Um, also, this podcast you've all been a godsend through the process. Y'all are so sweet. Sweet. Um, I've binge all episodes, and replayed several when I hit that specific phase <laughs> of my journey. Aww. And thankful for the knowledge you share and the comfort it provides.
2: Aww well, that's warm and fuzzy.
1: You know, I think with any measurement, you know, if I measure something on ultrasound and Carrie measures it and Susan measures it, it, we're not going to measure it exactly the same. Now, granted, it's about a millimeter difference, but I mean, millimeters, not very much. That's a really small little amount. What I would say about both lining measurements, they're both really good. So, I wouldn't worry too much if it's 7.6 or 8.4. So, I don't think it has anything to do with endometriosis. It's just sometimes that happens and sometimes we'll see patients will have a better lining one day and, not quite as good, but it, it probably is just the difference in measurements. I mean, it's probably not really a, a real difference that would have real clinical significance in terms of a transfer.
2: It would definitely, like if you're worried about it, you can always ask your doc and, and look at the pictures with them or ask them kind of to describe it to you but there's there's a like abby said there's a difference in measurements and so even the difference of just a couple of degrees angle as you are holding the ultrasound when you snap that picture makes a huge difference because if you if you're cutting through on a different angle you're going to get a different measurement and the the underlying measurement is still the exact same it's just you're not necessarily getting the exact same angle on it and so um there is you know, about, I want to say it's one to two millimeters error rate in any ultrasound. So even if you have the same person doing it again and again and again, there is an error rate. That is normal. And that's that's just part of the deal. Um, It sounds like you haven't had progesterone yet. There's I want to say it's somewhere between a third and a half of people who, once they do get progesterone, their lining contracts and shrinks mm-hmm. down. And that Which is normal. Is
0: normal <laughs> that's
2: normal and expected if you just look at what a normal lining works out without from those any, glands. <laughs> normal linings without any um hormonal exposure from the outside at all, just what your body normally does, like it contracts down. And that's good. That's actually a good prognosis for pregnancy. um And so, you know, I would, it's always easy to just say, let's do one more ultrasound in a day or two and see how it goes. <laughs> Because if, it, because if it's breaking down, it'll continue to look smaller and smaller and not great. And if it's just a measurement error, it's going to be hanging in the same place. So, you know, you can always get a tiebreaker ultrasound.
0: Out of curiosity, when you do FETs and you're doing a program cycle, how many ultrasounds do you normally do after your baseline ultrasound? Normally, yeah.
1: usually, usually one, three weeks later, usually, usually one to two. We old. only do two. If, we only do two if the second one doesn't look good. Then because, we would do a third yeah.
2: one. Yeah. No, we're OCD. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah. Carrie's Clinic does a lot of measurements and a lot of things. (laughs) Which is great because they generate a huge amount of research, which is very, very important to our field.
1: But I do find, kind of like our listeners, sometimes... Part of me says, you know, I don't know that I don't want to get that second ultrasound because in the situation just like this, patients are like, well, do you think something bad's going on? And, you know, it's just, I think it creates a lot of unnecessary angst. And so we don't generally, if we get a good one, no point doing another one. You know, If you're, if your lining is really breaking down, you're going to have bleeding, you know, if it's truly breaking down. And so we don't typically do an extra one unless we need to for some reason. Good stuff.
0: All right. Well, let's go to our topic of the day. So we are going to discuss IUI or intrauterine insemination today. So tell us what is what is the basic reason we would do iui why why do why is that a major treatment modality that we use
1: we just want to concentrate sperm and get it closer to where it needs to be get kind of help it get through all the obstacle courses that it normally goes through in the female reproductive tract get it to closer to where it needs to be Very it's good.
2: cheaper it's easier it's less involved and it gives a slight bump to your success rates and so it's a good starting place like it's a it's a way of dipping your toe into the fertility treatment world without feeling like you are plunging directly into the deep end.
1: But you you know, what I was going to say is kind of from our perspective, having, you know, we do a lot of IVF. From our perspective, we think, oh, it's kind of dipping your toe in the water. It's really amazing to me how many people feel like they're like for a lot of people swimming in an Olympic pool when they do IUI. And so, you know, it's kind of everybody has to go at their own pace. Um, a lot of times, sometimes sometimes people will just start out with oral medicine. But for us, we kind of really recommend doing both of those together rather than doing either one of them separately. Yeah. So
0: the way that I kind of summarize IUI is we're getting more good sperm where they need to be, when they need to be there. So when you have intercourse, most sperm are lost in the vagina. It's just the way humans are 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 built. We have lots of patients who come in, they're like, well, after after we have sex, like some of it comes out. Is that normal? Mm-hmm. And it, that is absolutely normal. Yeah. Um. And, and so uh, so, Carrie, kind of tell us if somebody is going to be doing IUI for a variety of reasons and they are in a heterosexual relationship. How exactly do we get the sperm? What's done with the sperm? Kind of what is that process?
2: So the way that we get the sperm is we ask him nicely. Um <laughs> he has to do it by himself. No one from my clinic is gonna help him. So don't you even think about asking. <laughs> um, have no objections to his partner helping him out there, but no lubricant, nothing that's gonna interfere yeah. with uh, with processing the sperm afterwards. And so
0: including saliva. Yeah. So just about to say including saliva.
2: Yeah, like. I, I regret to inform you. You're going to have to do this the hard way. No pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> I don't know. This, I feel like this episode is going to generate a lot of sperm jokes. So maybe it's good that we started with the laughing sperm. Yeah, I, yeah. Don't I was going to say we started it with the right little little side thing. So, so we want him to have roughly two to five days of abstinence, meaning he ejaculates at some time, two to five days before we think the IUI is going to happen. We can talk about timing more in a minute. Then he comes in typically the morning of the IUI, you know, a couple hours before she's planning on coming in and gives the specimen. So it's most often done by uh, just masturbation and you collect it in a cup. There are other things like collection condoms, but by and large, the collecting in the cup is the easiest way to go about this to get a good sample that you don't have to fight with.
1: Um, But if you do want to collect with a condom at home or in a hotel room close by, make sure you get the condom from us because we don't want yes. you to just use a regular condom over the counter because it has spermicidal agents in it. So the condoms that you get from us are ones that we can then use to 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 you know to prepare your sperm specimen
2: with. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get the sperm, it then goes to the laboratory. And so the andrology lab, which is there's two parts of the lab. There's embryology, which is what deals with putting eggs and sperm together, growing them out, you know, blastocyst biopsies, all of that, and then there's the andrology lab, and the andrology lab is solely focused on sperm. And so, um, for for what they do, andrologists are remarkably normal. Um, when you get the sperm there, what they are going to do is they want to separate out the sperm from the seminal fluid because, and I had to actively work for many years as I was describing uh, to patients this saying we need to separate out the sperm and the fluid that he comes in because I realized like six months in, that is not good phrasing. So, <laughs> so you get you get the seminal fluid, and you get the sperm. You can't just take a straight sperm sample and put it in her uterus because she will be incredibly cranky with you, uh, with me. It hurts. And with us. Yeah, it hurts. Like, and and at its worst, you can get like anaphylactic shock. It doesn't happen very often, but there's a really process these samples. And so, what they do is they spin it down. They put it in a centrifuge, and they want to split up all the sperm, concentrate in one place, and all the fluid on top. And so, they can just take off that fluid, and then take the remaining little pellet of sperm and put it in a very easily tolerated simple fluid, just a buffer that um, that if we put it in your uterus, the swim can the sperm can easily swim out of it and you will not be cranky at us for putting something in your uterus that's going to cause massive cramping and be a bad day.
0: Very good. Very good. Now for our listeners who may not have a male partner... Um, for whatever reason, how 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 do you acquire sperm for an IUI that way?
2: You so do, do not you, go you, on Craigslist.
1: Yeah, you don't go on Craigslist. And we may want to mention too how the like how the what the patient goes through kind of when you know when you come in for the IUI. But to answer your question, um, basically there are several very reputable sperm banks. Um, we've talked to California Cryobank here. There's several other ones. The one that provided the laughing sperm, for example, Fairfax. Um, your clinic will know and probably be able to give you some idea who they typically work with, who they've had good results with. Um, Donors that go through those banks have to be tested and they're tested very rigorously in terms of their family background, their genetic history, whether they're smokers or not, Um, they're screened with testing. So infectious disease testing, things like HIV and hepatitis B, hepatitis C, um, other things that you've not heard of, probably like something called CMV or cytolomegalovirus. Um, They're screened through all those ways. Um, Their sperm is frozen initially. It's quarantined for six months, meaning it can't be used. They're retested again. And then at that point, once all those tests come back that show that they're still very healthy, then that's the sperm that's available that you're able to look at online and choose. And you can choose different banks have different characteristics that they list. They list hair color, eye color, ethnicity. And some of the banks will list different things. I think some of the banks now have open. In fact, I think Seattle Sperm Bank has Mm -hmm. open enrollment where, you know, the donor fully is fully aware that your child may at some point come to see them or meet them or something like that. So every bank's a little bit different in terms of the things the offerings they have for you if you use their sperm. Very
0: good. And what if you are single or in a same-sex relationship and you have a friend who wants to give you sperm? What 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 is the basic process of that?
2: So that's considered a known donation, which is handled just a little bit differently than anonymous donation. So no matter where you get that sperm, it has to go through FDA testing, which is the specific set of labs sent to a specific lab, not just any old laboratory. Um, It is a pretty extensive questionnaire and it's a physical exam done at the time of sperm collection. And so that has to be done whenever you're using sperm from someone who's not an intimate partner. When you are doing a known partner, and that's what the sperm banks are going to do. And so they're they're going to take care of all that. But if you have a friend or an acquaintance or whomever that you're going to work with, you have to add on a couple things. So number one, it's your clinic doing all that testing instead of a bank, which is fine. We're all set up for that. And then you also have to make sure there is a legal agreement in place. Because you want it to be very clear from the outset that this is your child, you have parental rights. That that person is not obligated to do to give child support in any way. And there have been some interesting court cases along the line mm-hmm. that made yeah. that super important. Um, and you also need to make sure that there's a psych evaluation on both sides of it. And this is not looking at is anybody fit parent wise for this what this is looking for is making sure that this guy who's been your friend for 20 years, this is not the way he's trying to sneak into your life forever and ever, amen, and Mm -hmm. that you guys are actually a good fit, or that if this is, you know, sometimes it'll be a family member, uh, an in-law, whomever, the goal is to make sure that when you're sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner five years from now when you've got this kid and the kid starts throwing food that the adults don't all pile in and start throwing food too because they're (laughs) not about whatever social situation is going on behind the scenes. And so that the reason for the psych visit. We want to make sure that everything is copacetic, that you guys have thought about what are we going to tell this child? When are we going to tell them? How are we going to tell them? Is anyone else going to know? And if so, who and why and how and when and all those things. And so a lot of it is just the logistics of sitting down and really thinking through the long-term ramifications of this. And it is extraordinarily rare for someone to Not get a pass on that, that psyche valve. Yeah. Oftentimes have people come back and say, Oh my God, we were, we were skeptical, but thank you so much for making us do that Uh, because. Yeah. Yeah think about all the we're now thinking about all these things that are really relevant and especially Mm -hmm. with disclosure of Mm -hmm. telling a child that they were created from a sperm donor you know that's that's not necessarily a big deal in a same-sex couple or a single female whatever but especially when you've got heterosexual couples where there is an assumption made of where that sperm came from you know the it's it's on a much bigger scale than Telling your kid there really is a Santa Claus. It's, <laughs> it's something that will eventually probably come out. And there will be far bigger ramifications of why didn't you tell me? You know, and and when kids grow up with it as just a natural part of their world part of who they are. Part of who they are. They don't think about it. But when you mm-hmm. find out all of a sudden in a bombshell when you're 18 or 21 or 25, or your first child is born or whatever, that that leads to trust issues. <laughs> and uh Nobody needs that. Absolutely.
0: All right. So kind of back to our main topic, IUIs. So we, we talked about kind of the prep. Of the specimen, what what is involved? Like the date of the IUI.
1: So people are always really nervous about this, and rightfully so. I was akin candidate to going to the dentist. When I'm going to the dentist to have some tooth thing thing done, they're doing all this stuff in my mouth, and I can't see what they're doing, and I don't know when it's gonna hurt, and I'm always feeling jumpy. So I really try and walk my patients, talk my patients through this. And you know, at a lot of clinics, and ours included, a lot of the times our nurse practitioners or our RNs actually do the IUIs. Um, it's really a pretty simple procedure for most people. So our provider brings the patient back to the exam room. Um, a speculum is put in just like you're going to have a pap smear. So you're in that same position. The medical term for that is lithotomy, where you're in the stirrups, um, And that's just so we can see your cervix. Your cervix is almost like a little cork between your uterine cavity and your vagina and it's got a little hole in it and so essentially what we do is we put a speculum in we take that little catheter that's about the size the caliber of a straw that you'd stir your coffee with except it's longer and it's usually a lot more flexible than that um, we put it up through the cervical canal once we're pretty certain we're in the middle of the cav- cavity um, and we know you know usually about seven centimeters from the beginning of the cork beginning of the cervix to the top of the uterus so somewhere you know five and a half six seven, somewhere in there, Um, we inject the sperm. And essentially, we do it real slowly to try and keep as much in there because the volume of your uterus is pretty small. And we try and decrease the total volume of what we put in there so that it all stays in there. Every now and then a little bit can leak out, but essentially we get all that specimen up inside the uterine cavity. It's a pretty simple, pretty painless procedure. Every now and then people will have cramping as we put the little catheter through the cervical canal, but generally we don't have to dilate the cervical canal very much. So most people don't really have a lot of discomfort. It's pretty similar really to having a pap smear basically.
0: So after we put in the catheter and we put the sperm sample inside the uterus. What did the sperm do and how quickly do they do it?
2: <laughs> so they start swimming and they start swimming towards the, uh, <laughs> as, as Susan is demonstrating the breaststroke there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So they start swimming towards the tubes. Now, the advantage with the IUI, like Abby said, is that instead of being positioned outside the doorway or entry to the uterus, they have already gone through the cervical canal, which is designed to keep things out. And they're up higher in the uterus, so they're closer to that T-junction where they can choose to go right or left into either of the tubes. Now, depending on which side the egg is coming from, some of the local hormones that are sitting there have an influence on the tube. And so it makes the one that is on the side where the egg is coming from a little bit more active in having the tiny little hairs on the lining of the tubes um push push the sperm in the direction that they need to be going push the egg into the direction they need to be going and so the sperm starts traveling into the tubes and that happens really pretty quickly like within the space yeah. of about 15 20 minutes mm-hmm. so they've done um they've done some labeling studies to show how quickly it gets where it needs to be and whether or not it comes back out and, and all of those things so you know like Abby said you can have a little bit come back out but um, for the most part, that sperm is going exactly where it needs to be, assuming that it's able to to swim in order to start finding the egg.
0: Very good. So one thing that I like to mention, there's a lot of things we do in fertility care that depends on timing, okay? And timing for IUI is important, probably not as important as it is when we do IVF because, mm-hmm. the first of all, sperm that end up inside the uterus, can actually survive for about 72 hours, which is a long time, okay? And also, there's some pretty good studies that show that if we get that sperm in, you know, within 12, like, so if we trigger your ovulation, sperm that are exposed to your egg or egg that's exposed to the sperm, vice versa, if that, we have some leeway, really about 12 to about 40-something hours That it essentially doesn't, doesn't change the outcome. So there's, there's some flexibility in that. Now, the important thing is for us to know when you ovulate, because once you ovulate, that egg is only good for about 12 hours. So that's that's the big thing. But if we have sperm there a little bit early, that's okay. And so that's that's important because I know we're all worried about timing and we want to make sure everything's precise. And sometimes, you know, people will be like, I'm supposed to have my IUI and my appointment was 15 minutes ago. And it's like, it's this is okay. This is okay. We, we have that flexibility. Now, sometimes we might have um, guys who need to come collect sperm in the morning, maybe before they go to work and their IUI isn't until that afternoon. How, how does that work?
1: So generally, we prepare the sperm, we get it all ready, and we concentrate the sperm into a small volume like Carrie was describing before, and then we put it in an incubator. And generally, when you leave it in the incubator, it can be fine in the incubator for quite a while. So it's not like the minute we prepare it, we have to bring the patient in immediately and do the IUI. Now, if it's sitting in your car in a cup for 12 hours, that's a problem.
0: (laughs) So for for some of our listeners who do live a long way off from wherever your fertility clinic is, um, there's a couple of ways that that can be dealt with. Um, Number one, most fertility clinics are going to have a private collection room at the clinic that you can collect there. Um, You can collect maybe at a hotel room. Please do not collect in the parking lot because I know I've had patients do that in the past. And one, I don't want to know it. Number two, moderately illegal. Um
2: if you get arrested, yeah. we can't do the IUI. We're just saying like exactly in jail. Yeah. yeah. You don't do those kind of you Can't households. Drop it off at but, our office before you go to
1: jail.
0: But there there are special cups um produced by a company called Protex. I use these occasionally for my folks who live a good Distance away. And, you know, I have a lot of guys who live in, the, who work in the oil fields or things like that, where that flexibility isn't available. And so with these special cups, you can collect and they have special, um, kind of chemicals and media within them that help protect the sperm. And so it gives you more than that. Hour that is typically allowed from the time of collection to when it needs to arrive at the lab. So um, just know that the cups you are going to collect in are special no matter what. Um, And if you have some special circumstances um, regarding distance or time, talk to your clinic because there's often things that they can do to help um, maneuver the situation, but don't do it at the last minute. If you think something might be going on, that timing or distance may be an issue, tell us sooner than later. That gives us more flexibility.
1: Yeah, Susan, so I have a question for you and then a comment too. So I, 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 don't, I don't really use those containers because most of my patients are close enough that they can collect. What's the time frame? If a guy collects, how long does it take for the specimen to get to your office? And what's the time frame for IUI with all that?
0: So actually, these caps, I believe, um, pr- protect the sperm for somewhere between 6 to 12 hours. It's a, it's a long time. It's, oh. it's way longer than what I normally need. Usually, I need about a 3 to 4 hour window and mm-hmm. it is way beyond that. Um, they're, they're, they're rated by their own company for a certain number of hours. We've done mm-hmm. our own testing that we're like, we feel very comfortable with this number of hours, but I know it's it's way beyond four hours.
1: So in Nashville, the music industry is a big issue for us. We have lots of people that travel, and it's not just the famous people. It's the people who are the musicians and the tour directors and the Writing bus drivers. Enough. And so a lot of times those people are out of town for several days. And so the other alternative, which is not our favorite alternative, but it's an alternative, is to free sperm for backup. And so we know with IVF, if we use frozen sperm, it works really well. And for the most part, even you know in a heterosexual couple who has a partner that could donate fresh sperm, um, it still works well. And in fact, with our same-sex couples or our single females, we have to use frozen sperm. We can't use fresh sperm. So people definitely get pregnant with uh, frozen thawed sperm. And so, so and for some of our couples that the partner travels, that's kind of our other alternative is to free sperm. And then that way we can just thaw it out when the patient's here and do the IUI. Who is frozen sperm not a good idea for?
2: Someone who has a really questionable count to begin with. So when we're deciding to do IUIs, in general, there's there's two classes that sperm counts fall in. One is the more than enough, nobody's worried about it. Um, kind of counts those guys do just fine when we freeze their sperm. There's the second group though, which is the more borderline counts, because we are looking at a total modal count when we are processing the sperm. So if someone what does that in, mean,
0: Carrie,
2: yeah, go on there. Um, <laughs> So what that means is if someone comes in and they have a count that's 20 million and they've got one milliliter of fluid and they've got 50% of it that is moving, the total modal count is about 10 million, because half of those 20 million are actually moving and therefore usable. The other half aren't swimming and while it may be fun to do donuts in the parking lot, that doesn't do us any good. And so what we need to do is we need to get those movers processed, and that's what we're going to use. So When someone has kind of a shakier count, like let's say you've got 20 million, but only 25% are moving. At that point, you're only expecting a total modal count of about 5 million. And if you freeze that, we know we're going to lose some in the freeze. That's Mm -hmm. normal. That's expected. That's typically not a problem as long as you account for it. And so those are the ones where having extra frozen samples is kind of nice because if you need to pull out a second vial, you can do that. And sometimes what we find is even those guys who have totally normal counts, once you freeze it, it exposes the... it exposes the underlying function and potentially uh, a less strong dysfunction. dysfunction. Like yeah. it, it, show, it, it shows the dysfunction. And so when you go to thought, you're expecting to get, you know, 10, 20, however many million. And all of a sudden it you does. got 2 million because it's exposed the dysfunction. And so that's a it's good information to have but it oftentimes is kind of traumatic the day of because you don't know it until then and so we still go ahead and typically do the insemination because you only need one good one because you only need one good one and all of us have stories of i don't think this is going to work because the count is you know three quarters of a million and that's it and and lo and behold she's pregnant and everything's fine so we're still going to do it anyway because we want to maximize every opportunity that we get but it means that going forward we may say okay we have to have a fresh sample. We have to have a ton of backup. You're more of a candidate for IVF than you are for IUI. Like All of those discussions start happening at that point.
1: And that kind of brings us to another topic that we were going to talk about, about a test that potentially could give you an idea Mm -hmm. beyond just doing a a sperm count. Yes, Susan. uh,
0: before we get to that because that's a very important thing who who are good candidates for IUI we're talking a little bit about numbers Carrie in, in your clinic what makes you what makes you feel warm and fuzzy about an IUI recommending iUI to somebody versus who are people who maybe IUI is not the greatest idea
2: so I want a total modal count of typically at least five million that's that's kind of our cutoff it's somewhat arbitrary there is a sliding scale which is why when we have a million we'll still do do it anyway. But typically once you hit about 5 million above that, there's a, a much higher level of comfort there. And so you need to have that by the time the sperm is totally processed. The other thing that a couple needs to have or a person going through IUI needs to have is fully functional tubes. Because if those tubes aren't open and if they're not working, there is not a single thing that we do during an IUI treatment that that bypasses them. And so if you have tubes that are non-functional for whatever reason or absent or whatnot, then if there is not a way to connect the ovary and the uterus, then putting sperm in is just putting it into to a dead end. It doesn't have anywhere to go and it can't find the egg and they can't have a party and it's not going to work. So we're not going to do that. So those are the two biggest criteria for determining if someone's a candidate for an IUI. You have to have sufficient numbers of sperm and you have to have tubes that are fully functional. Abby, yeah. what
1: about people with certain ovarian function? Um, Well, if if a woman has premature ovarian failure, she doesn't ovulate at all, that's a problem. Carrie said like if she doesn't have tubes open. And the other thing is, you know, sometimes we worry about low egg count and we know that with IVF for sure, somebody has a low egg count that can negatively affect their success. But, you know, over the years that we've been doing egg counts like AMH, the blood test AMH, in fact, I just had a person this week who did her first IUI with an AMH of 0.2 and is pregnant and it looks good. And so... I don't know that you can really use that as a criteria anymore. I think we used to worry about that. But certainly, if you're not ovulating, if you have hypolymic amenorrhea, that's a problem. Uh, one of the questions we talked about earlier, um, if you have irregular ovulation, you know you have to be ovulating in order for the sperm and the egg to get together. So I think those are important things. You need to start people on medications um, to help them ovulate if they're inovulatory. Yeah. Hey, Carrie, and then I want to say something.
2: So the other extreme, which is the PCOS patients who have uh, approximately a zillion and a half eggs. That is a scientific number. Um, sometimes they, usually when they're coming in, they don't ovulate in the first place, which is why they're seeing us. And we're giving them medications to help along the ovulation process. And part of that is an oral medication. Part of that is an injectable medication. Um, we can we can either talk about that the, this episode or probably worth its own episode. But yeah. <laughs> when, we are, when we are giving those, about 15% of women with PCOS aren't going to respond to the oral meds. And so we have to use much stronger meds. And a lot of times that doesn't make sense to do in the context of an IUI. So the mm-hmm. meds are good, but nothing is perfect. And so sometimes it, it makes more sense to take a different approach if, the medications we're giving can't elicit an egg growing, getting big, releasing all of those things. Where you know you're you're doing routine treatment, and the body is just like, nope, screw you, I'm out. I'm or we don't want to give
1: you medicine and make you ovulate ten eggs when we do IUI. That, that that's a no no.
2: <laughs> True, story. True <laughs> story. We don't want you on the cover of Time magazine, and I don't want to be there with you. So right. that is no a- TV
1: shows for you. Nothing that. Nothing no, like
2: that. no, no, no. If if you're gonna get a book deal because of it, the answer. is
1: no. Um, So I'd
0: like to comment a little bit about diminished ovarian reserve. Um, So one, I think it depends on how many children you're wanting to have, okay? Because if you have diminished ovarian reserve and you're only focused on right now and we are okay with potentially only having one child IUI is is more of a viable option but if you come to me with diminished ovarian reserve either because of AMH levels FSH or age that that can have a big impact because we don't know how quickly your ovaries are going to continue to age and there's sometimes it's going to happen a lot faster than than it may in others. I mean, if you come to me and you're 41 years old and you tell me you want to have three children, IUI is probably not going to be the best option for you. Uh, I mean, there's a reasonable chance I could get you pregnant using IUI, though it is it is moderately small. I mean, there was a study done probably about, gosh, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago that looked at people using injectables with IUI who are over 40 years of age, they have about a 4% take-home baby rate, which is not impossible. You know, it's a little less than 1 in 20. And yes, it's a whole lot less expensive than IVF, but it's it, you know, it's still not that great of odds. So the, these are things that that should continue to go through your mind, kind of looking at your own personal big picture and what your goals are. Because once you're pregnant, you're pregnant, which is fantastic. But we also want to make sure how it may have other implications for your your family building goals. Um. So kind of, since we've covered that, we want to talk a little bit about a, a test that can make some, um give you some more information to see if IUI is a better option. And
1: and what test would that be, Abby? That is the sperm QT test. It's really kind of fascinating and really kind of cool to actually have a new test that we can do that doesn't necessarily relate to IVF. I mean, it does in a way, but it's a test that we can do on sperm to really look and see kind of how the sperm functions. Um, The the makers of the test say that it's a way to look under the hood of the sperm, to look at the genetics of the sperm and really see if the sperm kind of has what it takes, the right stuff to bind to and penetrate the egg and get into the egg. So what it really tells you is if you're a new patient in the IVF world, you come in, we talked to you about doing a sperm test, husband, partner has a great sperm count. This is sort of the next level. So if he has a good count, it's like, okay, is he real? Are you guys really a candidate for IUI? And the way we figure this out is by doing the sperm QT test. He uh, collects a sample and can even be the same sample as what he does his sperm test with. It's evaluated and basically it comes back and says that he has an excellent count, uh, a good count, normal count, good count. Or, Excellent function, good poor, function. Poor function. Um, and so even function. if his number, what that means is even if his numbers look great, if he, it doesn't look like his sperm functions very well, then we probably would be talking to you about not doing IUI, but doing in vitro fertilization. And in that process, even if his sperm is poor with the sperm QT test, doesn't mean that the sperm doesn't work well with IVF. It just means that the sperm really can't get into the the egg in the way you would hope if you're going to do IUI.
0: So when we're looking at sperm QT, what what it's measuring are little genes within the sperm that have either been turned on or turned off. And these have been turned on or off through process of life. Okay. So sometimes we know there are some exposures, things like alcohol use, marijuana use, nicotine use, um, obesity, other health issues different things like that. So sometimes there's something that's identifiable that sometimes can be modified that can potentially improve your sperm QT function and kind of get you back into that normal range. Um, But a lot of times, a lot of times we can't. And so um, often we'll have people who come in and maybe they're in a new relationship and they're like, he's got great sperm. He's got four kids. And I'm like, how old are those kids? And he's like, they're like, 9, 12, 15, and 20. I'm like, that's great. That was a a very good analysis of what was going on 10 years ago. (laughs) And, And so, when, if somebody does have a poor sperm QT, it doesn't mean he can't get pregnant with IUI, but it essentially means your success rates are about half that, what we would normally quote or expect for somebody. And so, again, depending on what your goals are and kind of what your resources and whether IVF is the right thing for you can play into that decision-making factor. But we are quite excited about having this test because we, we've we had the semen analysis for a long time and we haven't had a whole lot of other things. Carrie, do you have anything else to add to that?
1: I have one final thing that I meant to mention earlier Um, I have, and this is not about the sperm QT, this is just about IUI in general. A lot of times I'll have guys that are like, you know, maybe their total modal count. And I I think it's different for different practices. We usually say about 8 million is our goal, but 5 to 8 million, somewhere in there. Yes, somewhere in there is kind of where we want your sperm count to be. So like if a guy has like a total model of 2 million, he'll go, well, what if I leave like two or three specimens and put them together and then we freeze them and thaw them? And so the problem with that is, as Carrie mentioned earlier, when you thaw sperm, about half of them or a certain percentage of them die. And so if you already have a low count and then we freeze and thaw them, it's it really doesn't help you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If you don't have that total modal count with your first and one and only specimen, it probably doesn't help to like put them together and freeze them together and then thaw them together because you end up, still end up with a low amount of sperm that generally doesn't do very well.
0: One thing I do when I have patients who are borderline maybe they did an IUI the month before and their numbers were lower than we expected and like I'd really like to bump up those numbers somehow um, we'll do what we call back-to-back IUIs so we'll trigger on one day the next day he'll collect and we'll do an IUI specimen and because I t- I told you we have that flexibility on the timing if that IUI specimen is fantastic we may not need to do the second one um but we have still the availability in that time frame for Two days after trigger to be doing another IUI prep and gaining extra sperm exposure, and even sometimes we'll have people go. I uh, will tell them to have intercourse within twelve hours of the IUI to kind of maximize that egg and sperm interaction. and And a decent number of people get get pregnant with with those additional you know options. But again, as you mentioned, Abby, freezing freezing sperm really kind of. Takes mm-hmm. takes a toll. And so if you have borderline sperm to begin with, freezing usually isn't the best option. Right. All right. Well, I think we have talked a lot about IUI. <laughs> we've covered a, a lot of great subjects. We did, we did. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So follow us, subscribe and stay updated on all things fertility. You can also
1: visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit questions. All questions will be answered on our podcast anonymously for the Ask the Dot segment. And we'd love to hear your ideas. So send them in.
2: And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.